turn in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. Matthew, and I'll read it for you. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, con consider what, what, what's happening here. Consider what's happening here from Mary's perspective. You see, I, I can imagine that she felt all of the same kinds of feelings that my wife felt. Or any woman who's in a pregnancy center or even an abortion clinic. You see, she had, she had hopes and dreams and aspirations of her life. Aspirations for her life, rather. That did not include a child at this time and in this way. Right? These hopes and dreams. And there was so much uncertainty about what was going on. What would she do? What would her community say? What would her mother say? What would her father say? What would Joseph say? But in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, we read how she responded to the angel despite the uncertainty. She said, let it be unto me as you have said. In other words, she didn't let the uncertainty of what she didn't know cloud the certainty of what she did know. And she chose life for her unborn child. You see, in pregnancy centers, we really try to encourage women to tap into their inner Mary. See, and ascribe to themselves the virtue and the character of Mary. Right? Now that said, what did God do to make sure that Mary's unplanned pregnancy wasn't a crisis pregnancy? Next slide. Well, he sent an angel to Joseph. You see, Joseph had much in common with any abortion-minded man. He had hopes and dreams, aspirations for his life and his life with Mary that did not include a child at this time in this way. And since he couldn't put the baby away, he was going to put the woman and the baby away. I mean, think about that. So what is that? It's basically a cultural abortion. It's a cultural abortion. The angel came to him and said, no, 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 Joseph. No, Joseph. There's something else I need you to do. I need you to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. A husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. And Joseph chose life too. And you know, it's interesting, next slide. When, when Herod wanted to kill Jesus, who did the angel go to? Who did the angel go to? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13, it says, Now when they departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take 
the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. You see, Joseph was told to provide and protect. One man, two missions, husband to her, father to the child growing inside of her, one man, two missions to provide and to protect. And see, what God gave me was this notion that there's always been a plan, there's always been a role for men in God's design when it comes to unplanned pregnancy. There's a high idea here. Husband to her, father to your child growing inside of her so you can provide and protect. Provide and protect. So, you know, it's interesting because what we're trying to do and what we need to be trying to do as well is not only trying to encourage the woman to tap into her inner Mary and ascribe to herself the virtue and the character of Mary, despite the uncertainty, but we also need to be encouraging that guy to tap into his inner Joseph and ascribe to himself the virtue and the character of Joseph. Now, and you have to say, well, why, why is this? Next slide. And, and it has to do with this. It's, see, the holy family was holy family. The holy family was holy family. Why? Because God doesn't just want children to have life. He wants them to have abundant life. Right? You heard that earlier. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Now, when Jesus said this to the people listening, obviously they were alive. So he wasn't talking about that. That's like you being in a pizza shop and you got a big pizza in front of you and I walk in and say, I, I want you to have pizza. And you'd say, well, I got pizza. I said, no, I want you to have it abundantly. So this would be a different kind of pizza other than the one I have, which means this is a different kind of life other than the one the folk that Jesus was speaking to had. You see? So he was talking about having abundant life. And when you think about it, he was talking, they, they, they were thinking in terms of physical life, which is bios, right? Bios, that word B-I-O-S, bios, which is the Greek word, the Greek root of that word is life. But when Jesus was talking about abundant life, he was talking about Zoe. He was talking about Zoe, a, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the, in the portion, even in this world, of those who put their trust in Christ. So this is a unique type of life, a special type of life, a different type of life that only comes by a connection to the source of life. So we have physical life and this unique spiritual life linked together in order to have abundant life. So you, have to, so you have to ask yourself, well, what does abundant life look like to a baby? I mean, how does that start? I mean, a doctor can deliver a baby and give the child life, so to speak, in terms of a physical sense, in terms of bringing the child outside the womb. You know, but the doctor can deliver that baby and leave the little beating heart on a cold steel table. Some of you may remember the former abortion doctor, Kermit Gosnell. That's what he did. He gave kids life and then he, little ones life, and then he left them to die. It's not abundant life consistent with God's design. Or the doctor can hand the baby to a single mom. Now we know 
Being a single mother and making that, that, that choice is a courageous, life-affirming act. But you've got to ask yourself, is that really God's design? I mean, is that really what God wants for mothers and for children? See, I grew up in a single mother home. And I know how difficult that can be for mothers and for children. Or that doctor can hand that baby to a father and mother who love each other, love their child, and who ideally are united in a godly marriage. Now, now that's the first step. Really, that's really that first step to this high idea of abundant life in a physical sense that Jesus was referring to. And how do we know that? Well, because that's what happened for Jesus. See, did you ever think about the fact that Jesus could have been born to a single mother? See, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Jesus could have, been, could have been born to a virgin, but it didn't say anything about a married virgin. See, but this would have, compl- would have accomplished God's purpose, but it would have violated a principle, a high idea in God's design. This high idea. So you see, everything about Jesus, how he was born, how he lived, how he died, everything about Jesus was a I do this so that statement to us all. Jesus was given abundant life and he became abundant life for us all. So that's why when folk ask me, are you pro-life? I say no. Next slide. I am pro-abundant life. See, I'm pro-abundant life. And see, but you can't be pro-abundant life without engaging fathers and without talking about marriage as a starting point. You can be pro-life, but you can't be pro-abundant life without doing this. And I always tell folks, so folks don't get twisted, it's not just about whether that mother marries that father, because we know sometimes it's, it's not the right thing to happen. She may not be marriageable. He might not be marriageable. There might be some issues. I got that. So folks don't get it twisted. But, but it is about her and his mindset being transformed. See, see they've delinked motherhood, fatherhood, sex, and marriage. That's what Yvette and I had done. Delinked motherhood, fatherhood, sex, and marriage, and God's design for that. And with that delinked, if they come to a pregnancy center, we love them up and then send them back out, what do you think happens too often? They come back again. Repeat clients. See, our, our, our sign can't say, thank you, come again. See, see our sign shouldn't say that. Our sign should say, thank you, don't come again. <laughs> Right? Not to be served, but to serve others. See, see, as Christians, our call, our call as Christians is help a woman and man to be transformed in a covenant context with God, each other, and their child. Right? It can't be a transactional consumer interaction. See, that's what thank you, come again means. And honestly, that's what Planned Parenthood sign says. Thank you, come again. They're not interested in you being transformed. Any renewing of your mind, because it's a retail model. 
Just saying. And so if we don't, if we don't have the same perspective with folks that come in, then our model is no different from their model. We just want a baby and they don't. So if we're going to be pro-abundant life, we have to be thinking about this in a transformational perspective. And in order to do that, you've got to be talking about and thinking about the things that I'm talking about. Now, as I've thought about this, because I've only been doing this work for about five or six years, I said, why haven't we been doing this so much? Why, I mean, when you, when you, why haven't we connected these things the way? And I started to think about how the, 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 this abortion issue came into the public square. Next slide. So there you go. So the issue came into the public square in, in 73, and, and pretty much about, with the pro-choice folks who said, look, this issue is about a woman and a question mark. And then, next slide, they started to define the question mark. It's about the product of conception. It's about choice, and it's about complicated. It's about something that moves from immutable, fixed, immutable, to something that's mutable, changeable, situational. Right? And we responded on our side, next slide, we said, well, no, no, it's about the baby. It's about the baby, and we've got to save the baby, we've got to save the baby. And the other side, next slide, said, no, you don't care about women. You don't care about women, you just care about saving babies, next slide. And we said, no, yes, we do. Love them both, love them both, love them both. And that's basically where the issue sits in the public square in the mind of most people. Two sides, one side saying woman plus baby, question mark, other side saying woman plus baby. Next slide. I, I, I reject that entire framework. You know, I had a reporter once ask me, say, is CareNet more for the woman or more for the baby? I said, that's a great question. That's like asking me, am I more for breathing in or for breathing out? I mean, both are essential to life. Both are life. I said, I reject your entire paradigm in terms of how you frame the issue. Next slide. See, because I believe that we should reject abortion, not just because it's an assault on the sanctity of life, but also because it's an assault on the sanctity of marriage and family as God designed. See, 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 God has a design. And, and here's the thing. See, when abortion was legalized, two things happened, and we pretty much only talked about one. And the thing that we didn't talk about, bless you, the thing that we didn't talk about, right, was something that had never really happened before. And it was this. See, we delinked fatherhood and motherhood in the womb. So now, women become mothers at conception legally, and men become fathers at birth. Legally. Legally. Now, that has had an enormous impact on culture. Enormous. It had an enormous impact on men. I mean, just think about that. See, see, our God is a God of unity. And he united fatherhood and motherhood together in the womb at the point of conception. And in God's economy, there wasn't fatherhood without husbandhood. And there wasn't motherhood without wifehood. So fatherhood, motherhood, husbandhood, wifehood were all linked together at the point of conception. That was God's design. 
And now we've delinked those. And so, so when you think about it, guys, say, well, hold on a second. Okay, so tell me again why I need to engage from conception to birth. When is your body and your choice? Call me when the birth comes. You see the problem we have? See, men have to birth a child in their mind. When, 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 when my wife got pregnant, nothing changed in me. But when she got pregnant, everything changed in her. See, so God, in his wisdom and in his design, he linked those two things together in the womb at the point of conception. And it anchored fatherhood at the point of conception. Well, see, our God is a God of unity. And what he had joined together, nobody should put us under. Moreover, fatherhood is a more fragile social construct and social institution than motherhood. And now we've stripped it from its historical and God-given connection in the womb, and the effects have been profound. Now, some of you might be mothers in here. Any mothers in here willing to claim their kids? Right? So I, I, I love to like, take, I, I love to take you back to, to just, just, uh, just this amazing, happy, joyous time, just laughing and fun, the birth of your first child. Do you remember that? You're, you're in delivery right there, and happy, 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 right? Right? Now, when labor got a little bit hard, how many of you were able to say, listen, hold on. I'm going to go get me a latte. I'm going to go get a latte. I'll be back. Just have the baby cleaned up and ready. I'll do, just, I'll be back. Anybody pull that off? Man, I tell you, I do this talk so many places, and no one's ever said, yeah, me. See, it's very difficult for mothers to leave their children. Incredibly difficult. And even when it comes to abortion, in, in many ways, for many women, it's actually a maternal instinct. Because they're afraid that if their child is adopted or it'll be hurt or injured, and they just think, it's better for me to put the child away. It, but for men, it's just a different thing. Now, if I ask fathers the birth of their first child, oh, a lot of latte drinking there. It's like double latte. I'll be back. I'm just saying. You see a woman walking down the street and she's pregnant. And you say, is that your baby? <laughs> I mean, I know we do some crazy stuff now. But I mean, 99.99% of the time, is, well, of course it's my baby. It's physically self-evident. It's biologically self-evident. It's my baby. Now, if there's a guy walking next to her, holding her hand, and if you say to him, is that your baby? That's not a dumb question. And, and, and as a culture and as a society, we should have a point of view about what his answer should be and what his relationship was with that woman before conception, during conception, and after conception. See, because every child has an evolved father at conception. Amen. The question is, will that child have an evolved father at graduation? You see, I tell folks all the time, kids have a hole in their soul in the shape of their dad. Yeah. See, God whispers into the wombs of their mothers that there is this one that should love them like no other. And when a father is unable or unwilling to fill that hole, it can leave a wound that's not easily healed. 
And see, I know that because I'm a wounded soul. So God knitted all this together at the point of conception. You see, we should object to abortion because we should believe that children have mothers and fathers connected them, connected them from conception on consistent with God's design. And if we had started saying that back in 1973 and said it consistently, it'd be a different issue. So that's why I say we can't talk about the sanctity of life without talking about God's design for the sanctity of marriage and family. And the other thing is, this is another trap that we kind of fall into so often. I've seen this already, is this notion that this is just, quote, a woman's issue. And we hear this, you know, from the other side saying her body, her choice is almost like a mantra that's out there in the public square. And I have to tell you, I hear that on our side sometimes too. And we say it's all about the woman, it's all about the woman, it's all about the woman. Next slide. And see, when we do that, we're actually agreeing with the other side. We're just arguing about whether the baby is a question mark or not. Now, The problem is, with what's drawn up here, is that both of those things, next slide, exclude the father. Both sides do. Now, you have to ask the question, who needs men anyway? Don't answer that question. I, 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 that's a rhetorical question to be answered by me. <laughs> I mean, let's think about it. On the pro-choice side, if they prevail, there's no baby. And if we need a guy, we just need him to pay for the baby. Which again, it's kind of like, okay, your body, your choice, but I got to pay half. Anyway, try another talk. Just tell you how men think. There's no baby. But on our side, if we prevail, there's a baby. And at a minimum, we want the guy to pay for the baby. And certainly we know from a societal and certainly a Christian perspective, we know that children need much more than that. So by framing the issue this way, we actually don't help ourselves in any way, shape, or form because we actually need men to be engaged in this because our model is based on a different design. It's based on a different design. I love this one writer, Frederica Matthews Green. She wrote this book called Real Choices, Listening to Women Looking for Alternatives to Abortion. Here's what she said. Providing a substitute for a father in pregnancy and child-rearing is like Providing a substitute hand, a dexterous, lightweight prosthesis with some grasping ability is better than nothing, better than a hook, better than last year's model of prosthesis. But the most advanced artificial hand that researchers can dream up will always be blunt and clumsy compared to the flexibility, warmth, and sensitivity of the original. It's better not to lose the hand. It's better not to lose the man. And of course, that's what all the research shows us. That's why I spent 12 years talking about kids do better across every psychological, social, economic, and educational measurement of child well-being when they're raised by a father and mother united in marriage, when you control for race, everything. That's what the data says. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. That's what the data says. God is wise. He has a design. And it's interesting because we did a little research too. Next slide. We actually um, surveyed women who had had abortions. Did a national survey. We asked women who had had abortions who was the most influential in their decision to abort. And guess who it was? He's the crisis in crisis pregnancy. 
Now, we built an entire movement, right, on talking to everybody except the most influential. If you go to a pregnancy center, too often our parking lot looks like Planned Parenthood's parking lot. Guys sitting in the car smoking a cigarette, waiting for the institution to do what the institution is trying to do. One side's good with that. The other side actually needs the guy to be on the inside. See, I'm a business guy by training. If you told me, look, Rowland, for me to do business with you, see Joe over there in the corner? Yeah. Well, Joe, I talk to him about all my most important business decisions, and Joe is the most influential person in my decision to do business with you. What do you think I would do? I'm going to say, you got to introduce me to Joe. Is that what we've been doing? You see? All because we frame the issue not consistent, in my view, that we frame the issue not consistent with the biblical narrative that's laid out there. And that's why, next slide, that's why, you know, the, the work that we do at, at Karenet, I, you know, the, all the fatherhood work, I rebranded it called the Joseph Project. See, we're looking for Josephs. And it's interesting because if you read that scripture, if you read that scripture, right, what was Joseph told to do? I mean, the, the order in scripture matters. What was the first thing Joseph was told to do? It was, do not be afraid to take her as your what? Baby mama? Boo? Shorty? I'm just saying. I mean, maybe that's the message version, but... <laughs> no, it was do not be afraid to take her as your wife. I mean, your wife. I mean, think about this for a second. Order in Scripture matters. There's a first commandment, and then there's a tenth commandment. That matters. Now, in my humanity, the first thing I would have said is, well, oh, Joseph, first. She is carrying the Christ child. Sanctity of life. Protect that baby. No, by the way, you can marry her. But listen, you got to protect that baby. But that's not what the angel did. The angel said, no, no, do not be afraid to take her as your wife. In other words, he affirmed the sanctity of marriage and family consistent with God's design first. Then the sanctity of life. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? See, he created the basket for the baby before the baby. God is wise. God's order matters. It, it, it matters. And we lost that narrative, chasing a narrative that was created by the other side. Now, here's another way to think about it. Next slide. This chart, because I'm a business guy, I got to have a chart, <laughs> right? talks about support needed by mothers and children, right? Physical, emotional, spiritual, and social support from conception, conception on. And the line kind of says the support needed changes over time. Now, God is wise. Next slide. He has a support mechanism to make sure that mothers and children have the support they need over time. It's called husbands and fathers. Next slide. Now, see that little teal in the corner there, a little in the corner? That's kind of what our work is. From conception to birth and maybe a little bit further. Right? Trying to provide that support for someone who's facing an unplanned pregnancy. But there's a problem. Next slide. 
It's called missing support. See, to the degree that a woman can't figure out how that's going to get filled, she's much more likely to have an abortion. It's just business. I'm just saying to you, one slide, that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. See, so while we're loving her up saying, listen, here's all the support that you have from conception to birth, the other side in the culture is reminding of all the support she doesn't have after birth. This is about nine months and one second. Nine months and one second. And that's why, next slide, see, 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. What does that tell you? Abortion is a marriage issue. It's a marriage issue. This is why you can't have a sanctity of life narrative that doesn't include a sanctity of marriage and family consistent with God's design. Not if you're serious about this issue. You just can't. Now, next slide. Missing support. Missing support. So, I'm challenging you here. I want to challenge you with, with a paradigm shift in terms of the dialogue that's happening in the culture. And frankly, the dialogue that's happening in the church. And the dialogue that's not happening in the church. Because the missing support issue is key to what's happening here. See, and that's why I say we have to stress the link between the abortion issue and this high idea of the sanctity of marriage and family and God's design to folks who desperately need to hear this good news. See, if you come from an environment or live in a culture where you've been to more baby showers and wedding showers... Who's going to tell them if we don't? Who's who, we, we're the keepers of the book. We're the keepers of the nativity narrative. If we don't tell them, then who will? That's why God is sending them to us. Now, let me keep going. Next slide. And that's why... We've got to be rethinking how the church responds to this issue. That's y'all and all y'all. Right? The, the, how the church is responding to this issue. And the body of Christ's role in this issue for a number of reasons. First, next slide, 54% of the women that have abortions profess to be either Catholic or Protestant. 54% profess to be either Catholic or Protestant. There's a big issue of abortion in the church. Next slide. And, you know, we, we do this serve, same survey. We asked women who had abortions about church attendance. And what we found was nearly four out of ten women who were having abortions, that had an abortion, were actually attending church at least monthly. And most of them more than monthly. So if you look at, you know, Barna's data, anybody's data says, well, who are the real Christians? They're the folks that kind of come to church at least monthly. Forty percent. Let's do some math. It's so roughly a million plus abortions. I'll use a million for round numbers. 40% of a million, use my lower number, 40% of a million, 400,000. 
The average abortion is about 500 bucks. 400,000 times 500 is 200 million dollars that Christians are funding the abortion industry. Year after year after year after year. We're marching here, marching there, defund Planned Parenthood, whatever. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. But I submit that we should start with overturning Roe v. Wade in our own churches and in our own pews first. See, I believe that this is the log in our eye versus the speck in the culture's eye. A lot of folks who are pro-choice because they knew someone who was pro-life who wasn't. I'm just saying. And, and, and I, I get excited about that. Because it doesn't matter who's in the White House, the Supreme Court, or whatever. Not that we shouldn't care about those things. But we know where we are. We know where we are. Unless you think I'm being too critical of Christian women who have abortions and often the Christian men who support it. We got to be honest about the fact that if a woman wakes up a Sunday morning and she takes a pregnancy test and it's a blue positive and that's a negative <laughs> in her mind, that's not good news. Exactly who she's supposed to talk to in your church. See, here's what we know. From the time that a woman confirms her pregnancy to the time that she schedules or often has her abortions, roughly about nine days. Only one Sunday in there. So when she gets that test, she has to know that day that her church is not going to try to treat her like the Pharisees tried to treat the woman caught in adultery. She has to know that her church is not going to stone her with condemnation. She has to know that her church is going to treat her the way that Jesus treated that woman. Said, Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. See, because you can't stone the woman without stoning the baby. So she has to know right then that my church, my church is a church that offers compassion, hope, and help. You know, I was at a conference once. I was talking about this issue about, you know, uh, one of the ladies in our, in our office who had had an abortion, and she was talking about what happened. And she said, you, you know, she said, look, when I was a little girl, I remember there was a young lady that got pregnant. And the pastor called her up to the front of the church. And she, this young lady, Christian woman, got pregnant, and she remembered that. And she said, I wasn't going to be that girl. She didn't tell nobody except who? The guy who got her pregnant. See, see this is my thing, too. See, when a woman tells a man that she's pregnant... She's not telling him that so he can say, I support whatever decision you make. That's like my neighbor telling me that he's going to cut his lawn. And I say, I support whatever decision you make. <laughs> he's like, well, yeah, of course. It's his lawn and his choice. See, when she tells him, I mean, she already knows that. And if she really, truly, truly, truly wanted abortion, she just crowdsourced with a couple of her girlfriends and get it done. But if she told him, she told him, somewhere in her mind, maybe hoping against hope, maybe dreaming against impossible dreams, that somewhere in his mind, and somewhere out of his mouth would come, 
I'll be a husband to you and a father to our child growing inside of you. See, she has a memory trace that goes all the way back that God put there. She's hoping that he, that he would say to her what Joseph said to Mary. That's why she's telling him. So I get excited about this because if we really want to change what's happening around abortion, we, it's got to start in the church first. 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 You know, next slide. And the reason why, it's, it goes back to James 1.27. Religion that God our Father finds as pure and flawless is what? That we care for the orphans and widows in their distress. And the insight God gave me was when this was written, what was an orphan? It was a child without a father. And what was a widow? It was, it was typically a woman, a mother without a husband. That's why there was a specific call for orphans and widows. Now, here's the difference today. Instead of the husband and the father being dead, it's the proverbial potential husband and father saying to the mother and the child, you're dead to me. And what we have at pregnancy centers are cultural orphans and widows. So if you're interested in religion that is pure and flawless in God's sight, you should care about that and you should care about them. But there's more. Because what we know from the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there can be a Lazarus moment even for that father. A call to him to be the husband and the father that God needs him to be. The culture can't make that call. The culture doesn't have that power. And the culture may just call him to be a father, but won't call him to be a husband. I'm just saying. Some of y'all been to a wedding. Anybody been to a wedding? Next slide. Been to a wedding, anybody? Willing to claim their spouse? <laughs> now, have you ever been to a wedding? You ever been to a wedding and and Sister's hitting it on the keyboard. She's just playing that march for the bride. She's hitting it. The bride's not coming down. Key it up again. Hitting it. The bride's not coming down. You ever been to a wedding where they turn to the maid of honor and say, listen, you better step in so we can keep this thing moving. <laughs> Have you ever been to a wedding like that? No. No. You end up like Jacob, all jacked up, marrying the wrong person, right? What do you do? You go check on the bride. You assist the bride. She may have left her shoes in the car. She may have... You check on the bride because there's no wedding without the bride. See, the church is the bride. And what's happened on the life issue, folk have gotten frustrated because the church and all of us in the church have not responded to this issue and come down the aisle. So other folks are trying to be the bride. Parachurch ministries are trying to be a bride. Everybody's trying to be the bride, but ain't nobody but the bride but the church. But the church. You see? So we're called to do that. I love Dr. Tony Evans. He, he, says, he says, when the church fails to act in concert with God's prescribed agenda, God often chooses to postpone his active involvement until his people are prepared to respond. I've been doing this work for about six years. I hear people, oh, the Lord, we're waiting on you, Lord, on this life issue. And I think God's over there saying, no, I'm waiting on you. Amen. He's waiting on us. 
See, next slide. Life decisions need life support. See, pregnancy centers, we can do some amazing stuff. We got little speed boats and short-term support, material support, evangelism. We get in there, someone's in the water, they're drowning, whatever. We throw a buoy out to them, get them in the boat, love them up, dry them off. Oh, there's another one. Get them in the boat, love them up, dry them off. Oh, another one. Give them a boat, love them up. It's a small boat. What happens over time? There's too many people in the boat. So what do you do? You look around and say, who can swim? And you put them back in the water. I call it the 1818 rule. We see her 18 months with a new guy in a new crisis, or we see one of her daughters in 18 years, or someone her son got pregnant in 18 years. We don't want repeat business. We're not in a transaction business. We're in a transformation business. Jesus met the woman at the well how many times? Once. What was the turning point in that story when he told her to call who? Her husband. See, the woman at the well yesterday is the woman at the pregnancy center today. That woman at the well was at the well the hottest part of the day, all alone, disconnected from community and family, everything. Why? It was tied to her no-husband problem. Why do you think she's at the pregnancy center or the abortion clinic? It's tied to her no-husband problem. See, because next slide, see that little boat, this little boat's supposed to be connected to the big boat. That's y'all and all y'all. So what's supposed to happen is folks supposed to go off the little boat and get onto the big boat. Because all those little buoys that you see there, those are the things, are the reasons. That's all in that missing support stuff. Those are the reasons why women have abortions and why men support them. And each and every one of you is sitting here in this church with one of these little rings in your lap. All of you do. That are connected to the reason why women feel that they have no choice but to have an abortion. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the bride. See, because if you don't do, who? So she, I want to have abortion. Why? Oh, he don't have a job. You got a business? Can you hire him? Can you give him a chance? She don't have a place to live. Got an extra room? Well, they've been in a relationship for a long time and it's kind of afraid. You've been married? Yeah, how long? 30 years. Hmm, you think you can mentor that couple? He grew up without a dad, terrified of fatherhood. You a father? Yeah. Can you walk alongside him? This is so solvable. But the only folks who are going to have the holistic narrative to solve it is the church. It's church. Life decisions need life support. Next slide, I gotta hurry up because I know y'all got other stuff to do. That's one of the reasons why Karen and I came with this new resource specifically designed for the church. I put a couple flyers back there on the table when you go out, if you're interested, and called Making Life Disciples, which is designed to equip the church to offer compassion, hope, and help to anyone who's at risk for abortion. Why? Well, we don't want Planned Parenthood or any abortion clinic to ever look like a compassionate alternative to the church. And we have to move folks from the pregnancy centers, right? And there are many of them here in this town, from the church, I mean, from the pregnancy center to the church for ongoing support and discipleship. So it'll increase your IQ around this issue and move the issue back into the church so that Christians won't think about the life issue primarily through a political lens or even a material lens. Right? Because so many Christians, you ask them, well, you're pro-life. Yes, what's your pro-life bona fides? They tell you who they voted for. Again, that's important. Don't get me wrong. Or they'll tell you how many diapers they gave or baby bottles they filled up. Again, that's important. Don't get me wrong. 
But it's got to be more than that. Next slide. Because what are we called to do as Christians? It's the Great Commission. Everything that we do is called to make disciples. That's the last thing Jesus said. We are called to make disciples. So every good work that a Christian does is supposed to equal discipleship. Do you get this? Every good work that you do. So is it a good work to offer compassion, hope, and help to someone who's at risk for abortion? Yes. Well, then that should equal discipleship. So if you see someone who's facing unplanned pregnancy, and your first response is, oh my gosh, what support does she need? That shouldn't be your first response. That should be your second response. Your first response would be, she needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. The child growing inside of her needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The guy who got her pregnant needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. So you've got to look at the life issue as a discipleship issue. Next slide. Because, see, we can only do evangelism at pregnancy centers, at least a conversion. But discipleship leads to replication. And, that's a, and the church is the seat of discipleship. So if there's an evangelistic ex- experience that happens and there's a, con- there's a conversion and we send them back into a discipleship relationship with the culture, what do you think will happen? Replication. That's why they've got to move from the pregnancy center to the church. You see? So the folks in the pregnancy center are members of your church that just don't know it yet. This is why we have to change in terms of what we're doing. Let me finish up here. Next slide. That's basically what I'm talking about. I could have just put that up and said nothing, but I like to talk. (laughs) Pro-abundant life, God's designed for it. The family, God's designed for it. Right? The major family informing the modern family and discipleship. And it's interesting, though, as I close up here. Because one of the insights God gave me is that everything we need to do is in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament and in the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament. After 400 years of silence in terms of text, the first text he gives us is our response to this critical issue of our time. It's all there. And, and it's interesting, too, to end where I, where I began. See, a child is more likely to have life, in, others, in other words, what, bias, right, life, when that family structure is there. A woman's more likely to choose life. So you've got the bios here, but you also have the Zoe there. Right? Because how do you get that unique, special kind of life that Jesus is talking about? Well, it comes through discipleship. It's all there. In the first book of the, the, first book of the New Testament, last chapter, first chapter, read, do. Now, I will say this as I close up. If you can't get excited about this, I don't know what to say to you. And here's the reason why. Do you realize that your faith starts with an unplanned pregnancy? I mean, your entire faith starts with an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective. This isn't an extra issue. This is actually the issue. 
starts with an unplanned pregnancy. See, see, God used an unplanned pregnancy in Mary's life to what end? So that Christ could come into the world to what end? So that he might have abundant life in the physical sense to what end? So he might become abundant life for us to what end? That we might become disciples to what end? That we might make disciples. So when you see someone facing an unplanned pregnancy, the way I think about it now, when I see that, I look at, the, look at that, and I see the child growing inside. Could it be that God is using that child growing inside that woman to an end so that she might become a disciple of Jesus Christ? To an end so that the child may become a disciple of Jesus Christ. To an end so the guy who got her pregnant might become a disciple to an end. So they might be disciples who make disciples who live and love like Jesus. See, God wants us to make a mark in this world in permanent ink. Hear me? He wants us to make a mark in this world in permanent ink. And the way that we do that is by loving others and by making disciples. Amen? Thank you very much.